This episode of Code Story is sponsored by A Personal Revolution Podcast. Have you been stuck inside wondering how to take charge of your life? Is there something you want to do but haven't been able to do yet? In Personal Revolution, best-selling author and life coach Allison Task helps you take control of your life with inspiration and humor so that you move from where you are now to where you want to be and have fun doing it. It's like having a personal coach whispering in your ear. This three-month podcast course, along with bonus episodes each month, will help you create a clear vision for what you want out of life, remove the frustrating blocks that are holding you back, develop a detailed action plan that will drive you to where you want to be, and build the network that will help you create your future. At $4.99 per month, the Personal Revolution podcast comes with a personal workbook, and real-time access to community of other change makers working towards their goals with positivity, possibility, and momentum. And for a limited time, all of this is available to you for free. Download the Himalaya app in your app store, look up Personal Revolution, and enter promo code REVOLUTION, all caps, all one word, at checkout to get your first month absolutely free. If you're ready to go after a better life, you are ready for Personal Revolution. Want to get a taste of the show? Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a sneak peek. For me, at least, I think of you know your cultural values as fluid. You know, they have to evolve with the company and the reality of the world. And so, and because you continue to hire different people into the company, you know, it's also going to evolve. And so, all you can do as the keeper of culture or champion of culture is to guide the evolution you can't really control it and you shouldn't try to control it because for me at least i think that over time culture is really owned and shared by everyone at the company it's no longer just the ceo's job or the executive team's job it's really everyone being a steward of it my name is jason tan i'm the co-founder and ceo of sith This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Jason Tan created a world-class solution to fight fraud through digital trust and safety. All this and more on Code Story. Jason Tan started his love of tech back in middle school when his dad showed him the wonders of connectivity through dial-up internet. After taking some beginner programming classes in high school and graduating with a CS degree from the University of Washington, he found himself drawn to creating powerful abstractions within software to produce outcomes for users. Though previously a hardcore video gamer, playing such well-known games like Diablo 2 and 3, he has since moved on to dabble in freestyle rapping and singing. And in 2006, post-college, he worked for startups in Seattle like Zillow and Optify. Finally, in 2011, he moved to San Francisco to start his current company and go through the Y Combinator Accelerator. Through some discovery, he figured out that a large area ripe for innovation and disruption was fraud. He then set out to build SIFT, a product to power digital trust and safety empowering companies to unlock revenue without risk. Yeah, so back in 2011, we were lucky to go through the Y Combinator startup incubator program in Silicon Valley. 
And in the program, we had a bunch of different ideas of what to pursue. Uh, some of the ideas were consumer focused and then other ideas were B2B focused. And in the brainstorming of these ideas and validation, we asked a bunch of our friends who worked at companies, we asked them a question of what kind of problems do they need help with? And oftentimes they would mention fraud as a problem that they needed help with. And back then my co-founder and I didn't know anything about fraud. I didn't even know what a chargeback was, had to look that up. But as we dug deeper into you know this world, it was obvious to us that this was a space that had not really innovated. Uh, the legacy solutions were these massive rules-based systems that were highly reactive and difficult to maintain and just really not scalable for today's internet. And when we had studied how the really great technology companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, how they solve fraud internally, it was all driven through machine learning. And so that seemed like the opportunity where we could democratize access to that kind of technology, large-scale real-time machine learning, and make it accessible to the rest of the internet that can't afford to hire you know, armies of very talented, but also very expensive engineers. And you know, oftentimes fraud is not a core competency or focus for these businesses, and they prefer to have someone just help really take care of it for them. And so that was eight and a half years ago, and here we are today. And you know, I think our thesis has proven out where we're seeing this really interesting shift in the industry because fraudsters are able to innovate and also you know, use technology themselves to move more quickly, move at scale in a more anonymous way than ever. The offense is continuing to become more sophisticated and the defense, us, needs to catch up and continue to stay innovative. And so, you know, right now I think that there's a lot of opportunity for us and other folks to really reimagine how the internet works. I think that we just play this out 10 years from now. Right now today, I would argue that much of the internet is really guilty until proven innocent. You know, you have to type in your password that you just typed in 20 minutes ago. You have to pull out your phone to do two-factor authentication, type a bunch of letters and numbers to prove that you're not a robot. All of that is really, in my opinion, unnecessary. I think we lack the tools, even though we should have the tools and, and services to more intelligently decide who we can and cannot trust. And so right now, today, we're left with an experience that often feels like airport security. Right, and nobody wins in that in that scenario. And so, you know, for us at SIFT, the ultimate vision of the company is to really help everyone trust the internet and reimagine that default user experience. And instead of us having to go through airport security, most of us should deserve a TSA pre-experience where we can just slide right through whatever we're trying to do uh, because we know we are trustworthy and only add friction and extra security if someone isn't trustworthy. Right. That makes sense. So you're essentially not solving a problem until there is a problem. I really, really like the analogy, too, of the keeping up with the offense and, you know, up leveling your defense based on, you know, what the offense is doing. That's that's a really cool analogy. Let's go back to the eight and a half years when you first started the company. 
Tell me about the MVP. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to build it? Yeah, I would say that the MVP probably took about 18, 20 months to build because we didn't quite have domain expertise in this arena. And so that was both a gift and a curse. I think on the curse side, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we had to do a lot of customer development, talk to our potential customers to understand their needs and the problem domain really intimately. But at the same time, the gift was that because we were outsiders in some ways, and we had strong prior experience building large-scale distributed data systems. That new perspective really helped us, I think, see the world differently and bring a more innovative solution. In terms of the technology stack, you know, we made some poor choices that I, I definitely regret, but it is what it is. You know, we, we had used, I think, Ruby on Rails for our console. We had used MongoDB, and you know, not that Mongo itself is poor technology choice, but given where our company was going to go and the needs of our customers, it just was not the right database technology to use. And eventually we switched to HBase, and now we're on Bigtable and, and Google, on the Google Cloud platform. Basically, the way I would describe the MVP was you would send us data as a customer, you would send us information about what your users are doing on your service, how they're behaving on your service. And, you know, we get this event stream, whether it's like a login event or, you know, an account creation event or a transaction event. And then our job at SIFT is to assess the risk. And is this person behaving in a trustworthy way or are they behaving in a suspicious way? Because we have prior examples of fraud to learn from, we're trying to correlate that behavior with that those prior examples. And so the MVP was very simply just input and output through an API. So input of data and output of a risk score. Have you ever spent a bunch of time brainstorming email subject lines only to be disappointed by the open rate? Why not just text your users instead? SMS open rates are 98%. Send out a download link to your app, let users know about a new release, or provide two-way customer support. Simple texting makes it easy. Text Code Story to 555-888 and get an instant demo and 50% off your first month. Seriously, grab your phone right now and do it. Text Code Story, all caps, all one word, to 555-888. Data and message rates apply. Use text to instantly connect with new and existing users today. Sign up at simpletexting.com slash codestory. Today's episode is sponsored by Dwalla. Dwalla is a fintech company solving a fundamental business problem. How to best move money. Payments are a key component of every business, yet one that can be difficult to understand. Dwalla removes the complexity involved in moving money to and from bank accounts using an ACH payment API so businesses can continue to focus on their core revenue streams. ACH transfers are efficient, reliable, and with Dwalla, they are available for any business. I've partnered with Dwalla for over two years and can vouch for two important aspects of their business, solid, reliable technology and amazing customer support. Dwalla enabled our team to achieve same-day pay on our platform. And if my team needs anything, we can rely on Dwalla's support team to get an answer quickly. Start building against Dwalla's API in the sandbox environment today for free. Visit dwalla.com slash codestory to get started.
I understand and relate on the technology decisions early on. You make short-term decisions to take on technical debt to make a product happen, and then you grow from that. So let's dig into those a little bit, though. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make in the short term. So you mentioned, you know, choosing Rails for the console and choosing Mongo for the database. And, you know, why did you go down those paths when you did? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, the mindset at the time, which I don't regret, and I think it is the correct mindset for most startups in their earliest years, is to just move very quickly and test different versions of the MVP until you find the true MVP. Really, it's this you know concept of not to use an overloaded term, but product market fit. What is that bare minimum set of features that a customer is willing to pay for and trying to learn very quickly without spending much energy to find that match. And, you know, for, you know, Mongo uh, to its credit and Rails are designed to be very easy to get started with, right? And it's low friction. And so for us, you know, we didn't need to really think too far ahead that, you know, SIFT would become what it is today. I mean, it's amazing that it has become what it is today, but back then I think it was just, surviving and trying to iterate quickly. So how have you matured the product since that point? Kind of walk me through the next few years. How has the product progressed during that time? How did the product progress during that time? Yeah, so I mean, I think we started off with this very simple risk score. I think the you know one of the biggest arcs of, of improvement over the last, I'd say, six years is just continued accuracy, right? And so adding more features into our models trying different types of modeling algorithms and collecting more data and augmenting our data, you know, use that data more intelligently. Accuracy is a big one. And it's, you know, the most important thing I would say, because if we aren't accurate at assessing risk, like our core value proposition is moot. But then second to that, we've really built out this beautiful dashboard. We call it a console. And this is really to help our customers make smarter decisions more quickly with their human review team. So in the absence of a perfectly accurate machine learning algorithm and score, there's going to have to be human intervention to review suspicious transactions or suspicious accounts that aren't able to be automatically decided upon. And so those humans, you know, have a really tough and important job and they need to make these decisions quickly, accurately, reliably, consistently. and you know, the tooling oftentimes for these human review teams is subpar, in my opinion. I think that these tools are often seen as, you know, second class uh, or second priority to other business priorities. And so, you know, we saw this opportunity to really step that up and provide a user experience for these human review teams that was delightful and easy and fast and, and fun, honestly, you know, trying to make their jobs more joyful. So that's the second big area of innovation for us is around our console, just really helping these humans do their job better. The third area of innovation, I think, is really just helping our customers automate more and more and more. So, you know, machine learning on its own is really just a radar. It's like flagging something as suspicious or not. It doesn't really allow you to take action on it, right? Because it's just saying, hey, look at me, look at me. And so how do we empower our customers to programmatically decide what to do when someone is suspicious or someone isn't, you know, when is behaving suspiciously or someone isn't behaving suspicious, suspiciously. 
there's a lot of business logic that the customer may want to implement. And so they might say, hey, you know, if this person has a high risk score on a login event, I want to have an email sent to that person and verify if that login is real or not. That's a lot of business logic that would have to be implemented by our customers. Instead, we've been able to abstract that away through a really powerful workflows product that or feature set that we've built out and that allows our customers to programmatically do more based on a risk score. That's awesome. How do you go about building your roadmap then? How do you go about figuring out what is the most important thing to build? How did you do it then? And if that's translated differently now, how do you do it now? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the overarching consistent driver of our roadmap has been this cultural value. You know, we have five cultural values and the first cultural value that I champion is start with a customer. And for me, at least personally, I just think that businesses tend to die because they become irrelevant and you become irrelevant by building stuff that customers don't actually need. And so really having a customer driven mindset where you are working backwards from the customer's problems and customer's needs ensures that our roadmap is relevant and topical. And so that hasn't changed over the last eight years. I think we've always had that culture of starting with the customer. And then I think what has evolved are the mechanics of roadmap development, right? As we scale the company, you know, we're now 200 plus employees. I think there's a lot more collaboration, a lot more communication, you know, there's more stakeholders. So the mechanics of developing that roadmap evolve to fit the size of the company and the stage that we're at. So can you give me an example of how you partner with a financial service, external third party or a partner that could strategically use your product? One of our great partners for the longest of time has been Zwala, and they have two needs, I think. One is when people are signing up for a Zwala account, they need to assess the risk on that account and, you know, the behavior and that's part one of the value proposition of SIFT. And then the second piece is that we have this great strategic partnership with Dwalla, where their own partners on their platform also need fraud protection and trust and safety and services. And that's where you know we can help Dwalla look good because you know they're exposing SIFT and it helps their partners too. You've mentioned culture a lot in our, our chat so far. How did you go about building your team? What did you look for in those people? Identify them as the winning horses. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first 10 hires we made were basically people that we had known before. And then from there, I think it kind of sustains itself to some degree. There's like attracts likes, and people have a pretty decent mental model of what we're looking for. I think where it gets very interesting is maybe when you're, I'd say, 30, 40, 50 people, and it needs to become explicit. The cultural values need to be written down, carefully chosen words to make sure that there is no misunderstanding. And then that process, I learned a lot about. You know, I, I think the first time I did that process, I was too top down. Like I had a very clear vision of what our values should be, and we were, I'd say, 40 people by then. And if I could do this all over again, I would have done it sooner. I would have done it when we were you know, 
did 10, 15 people. But yeah, so we were 40 people. And instead of really, I think, asking for input and driving this more bottoms up, I made the mistake of handing a, a document kind of like the Moses with the Ten Commandments. And that wasn't well received. It, it was people weren't really bought into it. And so, you know, I owned up to that and just restarted the process and met with every single team member in groups of four or five and just got these discussions going about what what are what do they think our culture is and how do they want to articulate that and artifact. And that was very effective. And then we came up with our five core values. And for me, at least, I think of, you know, your cultural values as fluid. You know, they have to evolve with the company and the reality of the world. And so, and because you continue to hire different people into the company, you know, it's also going to evolve. And so all you can do as the keeper of culture or champion of culture is to guide the evolution. You can't really control it and you shouldn't try to control it. Because for me, at least, I think that over time, culture is really owned and shared by everyone at the company. It's no longer just the CEO's job or the executive team's job. It's really everyone being a steward of it. That's awesome. You said two incredibly awesome things that I want to point out. One, you as a leader went forward in one path, saw that it was you know not the most optimal path for your team, you know, took ownership of it and redirected. That's a huge thing as a leader. It's a hard thing. That's that's the burden of leadership. But that's such an important thing to be able to be like, my bad, we're going to do it this way. And then two, the way you went about building the team culture was having the team build it. And essentially that gains buy-in from the people who are the team who are promoting the culture, which makes it makes it so much more effective. Thank you. Yeah, I would say like, I think in terms of how it's fast forwarded to today, like over the last six years since we wrote this down, you know, I think the hardest part now is really getting crystal clear on how these cultural values translate to hiring, firing, and promotion decisions, and really developing a consistent uh, rubric for how you evaluate those qualities that you want to really hold true for your culture. And it's an interesting puzzle because, you know, we have offices for four different offices around the world, and there's interesting uh, nuances to think about with each region and you know different cohorts of, of people. Some people have been at SIFT for you know six years. Some people have been here for six months. And so, how do you really create that shared context on what we stand for and what we believe? That's awesome. Let's touch on scalability a little bit. So you mentioned an MVP. You built the product one way and it wasn't cutting it and you made some changes. How did you factor scalability into the early days and how do you factor it in moving forward now and how you build your product? Yeah, great question. Admittedly, I think in the earlier years, you're just trying to keep up. I think we were just trying to add customers because there was really strong demand for the product. We were very lucky to have that. And in some ways, we are managing the derivative of our customers' growth. And so, you know, they're sending us all these events. And as they have huge spikes, we need to be able to, you know, handle that without missing a beat. But sometimes we did miss a beat, right? I mean, I think we really uh, understood sooner than later because of the reality of the situation, like where our bottlenecks were. 
And, you know, it's this constant firefighting and it's really tough, you know, to just be in that mode all the time. A lot of late night pages and, you know, some outages here and there, uh, which was unfortunate. But I think there's very few businesses that, I don't think there's any businesses that go through unscathed in that scale up phase. So I think the shift becomes one of, you know, you're going from reactive to proactive and trying to be more intentional and thinking longer term and trying to get ahead of things and take more preventative measures and thinking more deeply about architectures for the next 10 years rather than the next you know six months because the business is showing itself to have legs and it's taking off and so that's you know we're still very much in that shift i would say i think we're always in that shift even google and amazon are, are going through that shift of their own we've already made some great changes in the last few years and then we've got some great stuff in the pipe for the next few years fantastic as you step out on the balcony and look across all you've built at sift over these past eight and a half years what are you most proud of i mean honestly it's just the team and i think you know i haven't built that team at this point eight years in it's the team building itself if there's anything i'm most personally proud of it's just i think championing the culture that helps enable the machine to build itself, right? There's this great quote that uh, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu says, a leader is best when people barely know he exists, when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, the people will say, we did it ourselves. And so if you ask me like today, what am I most proud of is that so much goodness is happening at the company on its own. And I have nothing to do with it. Like the best days for me are when I hear about a win that I didn't even know was happening, right? We made a great hire and I didn't have to be on the interview loop. We shipped something great and I wasn't involved in having to oversee it. Like things are happening on their own. And I think this goes back to that, you know, what we started this conversation with this idea of building the software layer of the company, like building that cultural layer of the company so that. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how your team responded to it? Honestly, what comes to mind, I think, are mistakes in my own leadership and personal development. And I think specifically, I give an example here where in the earliest years of the business, I was not that confident in my own skills and abilities as a CEO. And I had a lot of doubt and anxiety about that role and how to do it well. Something I know now, but I didn't know then, is that I often used humor as a way to diffuse tension and to try to mitigate conflict. And there is a time and place for that, but I was overusing humor. And many situations where I was making a joke and it just wasn't what was called for in that situation. Sometimes you just need to manage that conflict or situation with more gravitas and space rather than trying to make a joke out of it. And I would say that the effect that it had on the team is that you know it would cause them to lose trust in me as their leader, right? Because they want to see their leader really tackle that conflict head on rather than trying to diffuse the tension with humor. And so you know, I was very lucky to work with an executive coach who helped me see a lot of these behaviors that were not serving my leadership, not serving the company. And you know, I could give you dozens of examples of this stuff. I think the biggest mistakes I've made have been just ones where I am not as aware of how my actions, my words are serving 
or not serving my intent or serving others. That's a great answer. What does the future look like for SIFT, for the product and for your team? Yeah, I mean, I think for the product, it's really this idea of helping everyone to trust the internet. And as everything moves online, we're going to see bad actors continue to get more and more sophisticated. As a business, you don't want to be too focused on the bad actors because then you end up with that airport security experience I was talking about. You want to have this incredible balance of trust and safety. It's not trust or safety, but trust and safety. And so we're today, we already are the digital trust and safety leader. And over the next 10 years, we're going to continue to innovate and deliver more features and products that allow our customers to sleep at night while knowing that they can delight their end users, right? And there's a lot of really great possibility for how we can change the default experience of the internet, right? Like I said earlier, just taking out all this friction when you log in or purchase or create an account or post a piece of content, it's not easy. I don't think anyone says that it's really easy, especially on mobile devices, which is where the world is going. And so I think more than ever, businesses are going to have to compete and stay ahead of the game by building and investing in this foundational service of around trust and safety. And I think we can really move the needle for that because as consumers, we expect the user experience to more and more so, we're expecting the user experience to be easy, fast and safe. And if it's not, we're going to go to the next business that can offer something like that. And so I think what we're building at SIFT is really foundational to the next chapter of the internet. And you know, even more so in this crazy time of COVID, I think we are seeing you know, what we're doing is really just critical because internet usage is at an all-time high and making so much goodness happen. But at the same time, there's going to be bad actors that are trying to take advantage of it. So that's yeah, what I would say in terms of the product is really just continuing to round out what it means to be the digital trust and safety leader. And then from a team perspective, learning how to build a globally distributed team. You know, we just opened an office in Ireland and another office in Scottsdale. Eventually we're gonna open an office in, in APAC. Like there's just a lot of interesting complexities and challenges that come with working in different time zones and making sure we build the right leadership and executive team to really uh, keep that connective tissue um, and share and build that shared context so that we can operate as one team. Awesome. Tell me who influences the way you work. You know, a CEO, architect, an entrepreneur, it could be anyone. Name a person you look up to and why. This is maybe an unusual answer, but at least more lately, I look up to kind of the spiritual teachers, the wise folks, I would say, you know, some of the Stoicism, so Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, Buddha, or Lao Tzu, or just not getting prescriptive on on the specific type of religion or whatnot, but more like just the well, the wisdom that is in these words that are ancient texts. And especially in these times, these crazy COVID times, I think they've really tried to espouse this idea that we should focus on what we can control. And, you know, the mistake I've often made is trying to focus on what I can't. And for me, at least, a big part of my journey on how I work is really to be less outward facing and less obsessed with how my competitors are doing or 
what is happening in the rest of the world and be more inward facing and look within myself and focus on changing myself because that is all I can control. I can't change other people. I can only change myself and how I react to things. And so learning how to build that gratitude and equanimity and joy, I think that's been my focus. If you could go back to the beginning of SIFT, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach on? Yeah, I would have seen a therapist. I would have gotten an executive coach starting on day one. I think I was just really carrying a lot of emotional baggage that I had not properly gotten support for and not healed. And this is actually something that needs to really change in Silicon Valley and in the world. I think that there is way too much stigma around mental health and we don't talk about it enough. We don't say, hey, I'm struggling, I need some help. You know, there's very much this fake strength that we have to have of, you know, fake it till you make it. And it's not okay or it looks weak to say, hey, I'm not doing so well. And I think I'm very personally very passionate about flipping that on its head because I think what I've learned at least is that everyone is fighting a battle that we know nothing about. And we can all help each other if we're more willing to be vulnerable and open about what battle we're fighting and ask for help. And that's how we can change the world for the better. And right now, I think um, we still we got some miles to go to really get to that end state. Agreed. Yeah, we've got a ways to go there, but I second that and, and champion it as well. So last question, Jason, you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who has built the next big thing. At least that's what they think. They're jazzed about their solution. They can't wait to show it off to you and to the world. What advice do you give them having gone down this road a bit? The advice I would give them is to ask in the most honest way possible. Ask them, are you happy? And for me, at least, I'll just tie it back to my experience. Like I think in the earlier years of the business, I was much more obsessed with trying to achieve success because I want status and power and money. And in my journey in that last eight and a half years, I realized that none of those things actually make me truly happy. And those are external motivators for happiness, but they're not sustainable. They're not lasting. And I think for me, trying to find true inner peace and learning how to, you know, still be very passionate about building a great business and a great team, but the reasons have changed. Like today I show up to work because I love my team, I love my culture. And I think that if we continue to build the right culture, then the success, the material success will come on its own. But I think earlier I was much more focused on the material success for the sake of the material success itself, which I don't think was healthy for me. So I would advise that young entrepreneur to Take a look within and understand why are you doing this? What's motivating? Like, where's that coming from? That's great advice. Well, Jason, thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for telling the creation story of SIFT. Thank you so much. It was an honor. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Season two episodes are co-produced and edited by Bradley Denham. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. 
And thanks again for listening. Hi, my name is Allison Task, and I am the host of Personal Revolution. Are you ready to be happy and do that thing you always wanted to do? Well, I am thrilled to announce that I have now made available for free the Personal Revolution podcast course. This course is based on my best-selling book, and it is now yours for free wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It includes 10 original episodes with plenty of never-released-before content, and then it includes a premium version for $4.99 a month. You will get a customized workbook. You'll get access to a private community on Himalaya, and you'll have just-in-time audio drop-ins from me again in the community on Himalaya. Just go to Himalaya.com, look up Personal Revolution, and type in Revolution to get your first month for free. I'll look forward to seeing you in the community.